Chapter Ten of the Huguenot by George Payne Rainsford James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Ten. The Recall. Albert of Mosey rode on his way with a heart ill at ease. The excitement of the preceding night was gone, and the lassitude that succeeded it was like the weakness after a fever. It seemed to him that the last cheerful hours of life were over and the rest was all to be strife and anguish, that the last of all the sweet dreams with which hope and youth deck the future were done and passed away, and nothing but the stern grey reality was left. It is hard and sorrowful to make up the mind to do any parting, and tenfold hard and sorrowful to make up the mind to our parting with the sweet promising fancies of our early days, to put ourselves under a harsher guide for ever, and follow with him a rugged and a cheerless path, when before we had been treading on sweet, sunshiny flowers. In general, it is true, the wise beneficence of heaven has provided that we should not part with all at once, but that the visions and the dreams, like the many gay companions of our boyhood, should either be abandoned for others, or drop away from our side, one by one, till all are gone, and we hardly mark which is the last." but there are times when all are snatched away together, or, as in the case of Albert of Mosey, when the last that is taken is the brightest and the best, and the parting is clear, defined, and terrible. Bitter, bitter, then, were his feelings as he rode away from Poitiers, and made up his mind that the last dream of youth was over, that the nourished vision of long years was dissipated, that the bubble was burst, and that all was gone, and she who, half ideal, half real, had been that object round which both memory and imagination had clung as the something splendid for the future, was not what he had dreamt of, and even if she were, could never, never be his, and that at length that theme of thought was gone from him for ever. That moment and that spot seemed to form the parting-place where youth, imagination and happiness were left behind, and care, reality and anxiety started forward with latter life. Though, as we have endeavoured on more than one occasion to show, the Count de Mosseux was a man of strong imagination and of deep and intense feelings, yet he possessed qualities of other kinds which served to counterbalance and to rule those dangerous gifts, not, indeed, preventing them from having their effect upon himself, paining, grieving, and wearing him, but sufficient to prevent imagination from clouding his judgment, or strong feeling from warping his conduct from the stern path which judgment dictated. He applied himself, then, to examine distinctly what were the probabilities of the future, and what was the line of conduct that it became him to pursue. He doubted not, indeed, he felt strongly convinced, that Clémence de Marly would ultimately give her hand to the Chevalier d'Evron, to his friend and companion. He believed that, for the time, some accidental circumstance might have alienated them from each other, and that, perhaps on both sides, any warmer and more eager passion that they once had felt might have been a little cooled. But still he doubted not, from all he saw, that Clémence would yet be his friend's bride and the first part of his own task was to prepare his mind to bear that event with calmness and firmness and dignity whenever it should happen. As his thoughts reverted, however, to the situation of his fellow Huguenots and the probable fate that awaited them, he saw a prospect of relief from the agony of his own personal feelings in the strife that was likely to ensue from their persecution and perhaps he drew a hope even from the prospect of an early grave. With such thoughts struggling in his breath, and with all the varied emotions which the imagination of the reader may well supply, Albert of Mosseux rode on till he reached the house appointed for his second resting-place. Everything had been prepared for his reception, and all the external appliances were ready to ensure comfort, so that there was not even any little bodily want or irritation to withdraw his attention from the gloomy pictures presented by his own thoughts. 
With a tact in such matters which was peculiarly his own, Jérôme Riquet took especial care that the dinner set before his master should be of the very simplest kind, and instead of crowding the room with servants as he had done on a former occasion, he, who on the journey acted the part of major-domo, waited upon the count at table alone, only suffering another servant to carry in and remove the dishes. He had taken the precaution of bringing with him some wine from Poitiers, which he had induced the sommelier of the archbishop to pilfer from the best bin in his master's cellar, and he now endeavoured to seduce his master, whose deep depression he had seen and deplored during their journey, into taking more of the fragrant juice than usual, not indeed by saying one word upon the subject, but by filling his glass whenever he saw it empty. Now Jérôme Riquet would have given the tip of one of his ears to have been made quite sure of what was the chief cause of the Count's anxiety. That he was anxious about the state of the Protestant cause, the valet well knew. That he was in some degree moved by feelings of love towards Clémence de Marly, Riquet very easily divined. But Jérôme Riquet was, as we have said on more than one occasion, shrewd and intelligent, and in nothing more so than in matters where the heart was concerned. It is true he had never been in the room five minutes when Clémence and his master were together, but there are such things in the world wherein we live as half-open doors, chinks, keyholes, and garret windows, and in the arts and mysteries of all these, Jérôme Riquet was a most decided proficient. He had thus seen quite enough to make him feel very sure that whatever might be Clémence de Marly's feelings towards others, her feelings towards his master were not by any means unfavourable, and after much speculation he had arranged in his own mind, from a knowledge of the somewhat chivalrous generosity in his master's character, that he and the Chevalier d'Evron were in love with the same person, and that the Count, even with the greater probability of success, had abandoned the pursuit of his passion rather than become the rival of his friend. Riquet wished much to be assured of this fact, however, and to know whether it was really and truly the proximate cause of the melancholy he beheld, or whether there was some deeper and more powerful motive still, concealed from those eyes which he thought were privileged to pry into every secret of his master. Thus, after dinner was over and the dessert was put upon the table, though he had wisely forborne up to that moment to do, to say, or to allow anything that could disturb the train of the Count's thoughts, he could resist no longer, and again quickly filled up his young lord's glass as he saw it empty. The master put it aside with the back of his hand, saying, "'No more.' "'Oh, my lord,' said Riquet, "'you will not surely refuse to drink that glass to the health of Mademoiselle Clémence?' The Count, who knew him thoroughly, and in general perceived very clearly all the turnings and windings through which he pursued his purposes, turned round, gazing in his face for a moment as he bent over his shoulder, and then replied with a melancholy smile, "'Certainly not, Riquet. Health and happiness to her,' and he drank the wine. The look and the words were quite sufficient for Jérôme Riquet, though the Count was not aware that it would be so but the cunning valet saw, clearly, that whatever other causes might mingle with the melancholy of his master, love for Clémence de Marly had a principal share therein, and confirmed in his own opinion of his lord's motive in quitting Poitiers, his first thought, when he cleared away and left him, was, by what artful scheme or cunning device he could carry him back to Poitiers against his own will, and plunge him inextricably into the pursuit of her he loved. Several plans suggested themselves to his mind, which was fertile in all sort of intrigues, and it is very probable that, though he had to do with a keen and a clear-sighted man, he might have succeeded unaided in his object. But he suddenly received assistance which he little expected, by the arrival at their first resting-place from a courier from the Duc de Rouvray, towards the hour of ten at night. Riquet was instantly called to the messenger, and, telling him that the Count was so busy that he could see nobody at that moment, the valet charged himself with the delivery of the note, and the message, while the governor's servant sat down to refresh himself after a long and fatiguing ride. 
Riquet took a lamp with him to light himself up the stairs, though he had gone up and down all night without any. And before he reached the door of the Count's room, he had, of course, made himself acquainted with the whole contents of the note, so that when he returned to the kitchen to converse with the messenger, he was perfectly prepared to cross-examine him upon the various transactions of Poitiers with sagacity and acuteness. The whole story of the cards found in the king's packet had, of course, made a great sensation in the household of the governor, and Riquet now laughed immoderately at the tale, declaring most irreverently that he had never known Louis Le Grand was such a wag. There is nothing like laughter for opening the doors of the heart and letting its secrets troop out by dozens. The courier joined in the merriment of the valet, and Riquet had no difficulty in extracting from him everything else that he knew. The after-conferences between the governor, Pelisson, and the archbishop were displayed as far as the messenger had power to withdraw the veil, and the general opinion entertained in the governor's household that some suspicion attached to the young count in regard to that packet, and that the courier himself had been sent to recall him to Poitiers, was also communicated in full to the valet. To the surprise of the courier, however, Riquet laughed more inordinately than ever, declaring that the governor and the archbishop and Saint-Elie and Pelisson must all have been mad or drunk when they were so engaged. In the meantime, the Count de Mosoy had opened the letter from the governor and read the contents which informed him that a pack of cards had been found in place of a commission in the packet given by the king to Messieurs Saint-Elie and Pelisson that those gentlemen declared that the packet had been opened, and that they had come with the bishop for the purpose of making formal application to the governor to recall him, the Count de Mousseux, to Poitiers, alleging that the only period at which the real commission could have been abstracted was while they were in his company at an inn on the road. They had also pointed out, the Duke said, that the Count, as one of the principal Protestant leaders, was a person more interested than any other both to ascertain the contents of that packet and to abstract the commission, in case its contents were such as they imagined them to have been. And at the same time, they said there was good reason to believe that, in consequence of the knowledge thus obtained, he, the Count de Mousseux, had called together a meeting of Protestant gentlemen in the neighbourhood of Poitiers, had communicated to them the plans and purposes of the government, and had concerted schemes for frustrating the king's designs. The Duc de Rouvray then went on to say that as he knew and fully confided in the honour and integrity of the Count de Mousseux, and as the bishop and Monsieur Pelisson had produced no corroborative proof of their allegation whatsoever, he by no means required or demanded the Count to return to Poitiers, but thought fit to communicate to him the facts, and to leave him to act according to his own judgment. The Count paced the room in no slight agitation for several minutes after he had read the letter, but it was not the abstraction of the King's commission, if such an act had really taken place, nor the accusation insinuated, rather than made, against himself, which agitated him on the present occasion. The accusation he regarded as absurd, the abstraction of the commission merely laughable, a suspicion, indeed, might cross his mind that Riquet had had a hand in it, but he knew well that he himself had none, and therefore he cast the matter from his mind at once. But his agitation proceeded from the thought of being obliged to go back to Poitiers, from the fear of seeing all his good resolutions overthrown, from the idea of meeting once more, surrounded with greater difficulties and danger than ever, her whom he now but too clearly felt to be the only being that he had ever loved. To the emotions which such considerations produced he gave up a considerable time, and then, taking up the bell, he rang it sharply, ordering the page that appeared to send Riquet to him. He simply told the valet what had occurred, and ordered his horses to be saddled to return to Poitiers the next morning at daybreak. He insinuated no suspicion, though he fixed his eyes strongly upon the man's countenance, when he spoke of the abstraction of the commission. But the face of Riquet changed not in the least, except in consequence of a slight irrepressible chuckle which took place at the mention of the appearance of the cards. The Count did not wish to inquire into the matter, but, from what he saw of Riquet's manner, 
he judged that his servant had nothing to do with the transaction, and setting out early the next morning he went back to Poitiers at full speed, hiring horses when his own were too tired to proceed, so that he reached the house of the governor towards nine o'clock on the same night. He was immediately ushered into the saloon, where the family of Monsieur de Rouvray and a very small party besides were assembled, and, apologising for the dustiness and disarray of his appearance to the Duke, who met him near the door, he said that he had only presented himself to show that he had not lost a moment in returning, to repel the false insinuations made against him. He was then about to leave the room, hastily glancing his eye over the party beyond, and seeing that his friend the Chevalier was not present. But the voice of the Duchess de Rouvray called him to her side, saying, "'We will all, I'm sure, excuse dust and disarray for the pleasure of Monsieur de Mosseuil's society. Is it not so, Madame de Beaune? Is it not so, Clémence?' Clémence had scarcely looked up since the Count's arrival, but she now did so with a slight inclination of the head, and replied, the Count de Mousseux, my queen, values the pleasure of his society so highly that he is disposed to give us but little of it, it would appear. The words were scarcely spoken when the Count, with his own peculiar, graceful, but energetic manner, walked straight up to Clémence de Marly and stopped opposite to her, saying gravely, but not angrily, I assure you, my dear lady, I do not deserve your sarcasm. If you knew, on the contrary, how great was the pleasure that I myself have derived from this society, you would estimate the sacrifice I made in quitting it, and approve rather than condemn the self-command and resolution I have shown. Clémence looked suddenly up in his face with one of her bright beaming smiles, and then frankly extended her hand to him. I was wrong, she said. Forgive me, Monsieur de Mosset. You know a spoilt woman always thinks that she has done penance enough when she is forced herself to say I was wrong. If the whole world had been present, Albert of Mosseuil could not have refrained from bending down his lips to that fair hand. But he did so calmly and respectfully, and then turning to the Duchess he said that if she would permit him, he would but do away the dust and disarray of his apparel, and return in a moment. The petition was not, of course, refused. His toilet was hasty and occupied but a few minutes, and he returned as quickly as possible to the hall, where he passed the rest of the evening without giving any farther thoughts or words to painful schemes, except in asking the governor to beg the presence of the bishop, Monsieur Pellisson, and the Abbé de Saint-Élie, as early as possible on the following morning, in order that the whole business might be over before the hour appointed for the meeting of the States. The bishop, who was an eager and somewhat bigoted man, was quite willing to pursue the matter at once, and before breakfast on the following day, he, with the two abbés and the curé de Guadreau, met the Count de Mousseuil in the cabinet of the governor. There was something in the frank, upright and gallant bearing of the young nobleman that impressed even the superstitious bigots to whom he was opposed with feelings of doubt as to the truth of their own suspicions and even with some sensations of shame for having urged those suspicions almost in the form of direct charges. They hesitated, therefore, as to the mode of their attack, and the Count, impatient of delay, commenced the business at once by addressing the Bishop. "'My noble friend, the Duke here present,' he said, "'has communicated to me, my lord, both by letter and by word of mouth, a strange scene that has been enacted here regarding a commission, real or supposed, given by the king to the abbés of Saint-Élie and Pelisson. It seems that when the packet supposed to contain the commission was produced, a pack of cards was found therein, instead of what was expected. That Monsieur Pelisson found reason to suppose that the packet had been previously open, and that he then did what Monsieur Pelisson should not have done, considering the acquaintance that he has with me, and with my character, namely, charged me with having opened by some private means the packet containing his commission, abstracted and destroyed the commission itself, and substituted a pack of cards in its place. "'Stop, stop, my dear Count,' said Pelisson. "'You are mistaken as to the facts. I never made such an accusation, whatever others did. All I said was that you were the only person interested in the abstraction of that commission who had possessed any opportunity of destroying it.' "'And in so saying, sir, you spoke falsely,' 
replied the Count de Mousseux, for, in the first place, you insinuated what was not the case, that I have had an opportunity of destroying it, and in the next place you forgot that for three quarters of an hour, or perhaps more, for aught I know, your whole baggage was in the hands of a body of plunderers, while neither you, buried in your devotions under the expectation of immediate death, nor Monsieur de Saint-Elie, weeping, trembling, and insane in the agony of unmanly fear, had the slightest knowledge of what was done with anything in your possession, so that the plungers, if they had chosen it, might have rewritten you a new commission, ordering you both to be scourged back from Poitiers to Paris. I only say this to show the absurdity of the insinuations you have put forth. Here, in a journey which has probably taken you seven or eight days to perform, in the course of which you must have slept at seven or eight different inns upon the road, and during which you were for a length of time in the hands of a body of notorious plunderers, you only choose to fix upon me, who entertained you with civility and kindness, who delivered you from death itself, and who saved from the flames and restored to your own hands at the risk of my life, the very commission which you now insinuate I had some share in abstracting from the paper that contained it. Besides, sir, if I remember rightly, that packet was entrusted to the care of a personage attendant upon yourselves, and who watched it like the fabled guardian of the Golden Fleece. "'But the guardian of the fleece slumbered, sir,' replied Pelisson, who, to say the truth, was really ashamed of the charge which had been brought against the Count de Mousseux, and was very glad of an opportunity to escape from the firm grasp of the Count's arguments by a figure of speech.' "'Besides, Monsieur de Mousset,' he said, "'had you but listened a little longer, you would have heard "'that though I said yours was the only party which had an opportunity of taking it "'and were interested in its destruction, "'I never charged you with doing so, or commanding it to be done. "'But I said that some of your servants, thinking to do you a pleasure, "'might have performed the exchange, "'which certainly must have been accomplished with great sleight of hand.' "'You do not escape me so, sir,' replied the young Count. "'If I know anything of the laws of the land, "'or indeed of the laws of common sense and right reason, "'you are first bound to prove that a crime has been committed "'before you dare to accuse anyone of committing it. "'You must show that there ever has been, in reality, "'a commission in that packet, "'if I understood Monsieur de Rouvray's letter right. "'The seals of the king were found unbroken on the packet, "'and not the slightest appearance of its having been opened "'was remarked till you, Monsieur Pelisson, "'discovered that there was such an appearance after the fact. "'The king may have been jesting with you. "'Monsieur de Louvois may have been making sport of you. "'A drunken clerk of the cabinet may have committed some blunder "'in a state of inebriety. "'No crime may have been committed after all, for aught we know.' "'My good sir,' said the bishop haughtily, "'you show how little you know of the king and of the court of the king "'by supposing that such transactions could take place.' "'My lord,' replied the Count, gazing upon him with a smile of ineffable contempt, "'when you were a little curé in the small town of Castle Nordray, "'my father supported the late king of France with his right hand "'and with the voice of his council. "'When you were trooping after a band of rebels in the train of the house of Vendôme, I was page of honour to our present gracious monarch, in dangers and difficulties, in scantiness and in want. When you have been fattening in a rich diocese, obtained by no services to the crown, I have fought beside my monarch and led his troops up to the cannon of his enemy's ramparts. I have sat beside him in his council of war, and ever have been graciously received by him in the midst of his court. And let me tell you, my lord bishop, that it is not more improbable, nay, not more impossible, that Louis the Fourteenth should play a scurvy jest upon two respectable ecclesiastics, than that the Count of Mousseux should open a paper not addressed to himself. "'Both good and true, my young friend,' said the Duc de Rouvray. "'No one who knows you could suspect you of such a thing for a moment.' "'But we may, his servant,' said the Abbé de Saint-Elie sharply, though he had hitherto remained silent, knowing that he himself had been the chief instigator of the charge, and fearing to call upon himself the indignation of the young Count. "'Well, gentlemen,' said the Count de Mosseille, "'although I should have every right to demand that you should first of all establish the absolute fact of the abstraction of this packet upon proper testimony, 
I will not only permit, but even demand, that all my servants who accompanied me from Mosseu shall be brought in and examined one by one, and if you find any of them to whom you can fairly attach a suspicion, I will give him up to you at once, to do what you think fit with. I have communicated to them the contents of Monsieur de Rouvray's letter, but have said nothing further to them on the subject. They must all be arrived by this time. I beg that you will call them in, in what order you please. By your leave, by your leave, said the Abbé de saint elie seeing that the bishop was about to speak. We will have your valet, Jérôme, I think I heard him so called. Let us have him, if you please. Jérôme was accordingly brought in, and appeared with a face of worthy astonishment. Having in this instance not to deal with the Count, of whom he stood in some degree of awe, though that awe did not in the least diminish his malevolence, the Abbé de saint elie proceeded to conduct the examination of Riquet himself. "'You, Master Jérôme Riquet,' he commenced, "'you are, I presume, of the Church pretending to be reformed.' "'Heaven forbid!' exclaimed Riquet, in a tone of well-assumed horror. "'No, reverend sir, I am of the Holy Roman and Apostolical Church, and have never yet gone astray from it.' This announcement did not well suit the purposes of the abbé, who, judging from the intolerant feelings of his own heart, had never doubted that the confidential servant of the young Count would be found to be a zealous Huguenot. He exclaimed, however, "'I am glad to hear it. I am glad to hear it. But let us speak a little further, Monsieur Jérôme. It was you, I think, who snatched from under our good brother here, Monsieur le Curé de Gaudreau, a certain sheep leather bag containing our commission from His Majesty. Was it not so?' "'I certainly did gently withdraw from under the reverend gentleman,' replied Riquet, "'a bag on which he was sitting, and which he took back again, as you saw,' declaring it to be the king's commission for exterminating the Huguenots, which did my soul good to hear. I gave it back with all reverence, as you saw, and had it not in my hands a minute, though I did think, though I did indeed know. Did think? Did know what? demanded the abbé. That it could not have been in safer hands than mine, added Riquet and though saint elie urged him vehemently he could get him to give no farther explanation angry at being foiled and such probably was the result that riquet intended to produce the abbe lost all caution and reserve come come master jerome riquet he exclaimed in a sharp voice come come remember that there is such a place as the bastille tell us the truth sir tell us the truth this paper was stolen you evidently know something about it "'Tell us the truth, or means shall be found to make you. "'Now, answer me. "'If your baggage were searched at this moment, "'would not the packet be found therein, "'or have you dared to destroy it?' "'Jérôme Riquet now affected to bristle up in turn. "'His eyes flashed, his large nostrils expanded "'like a pair of extinguishers, and he replied, "'No, Abbé, no, neither the one nor the other.' But since I, one of the king's most loyal Catholic subjects, am accused in this way, I will speak out. I will say that you two gentlemen should have taken better care of the commission yourselves, and that though not one scrap will be found in my valise, or in the baggage of any other person belonging to my lord, I would not be answerable that more than a scrap was not found amongst the baggage of some that are accusing others. Now, now, sirrah! cried the Abbé de saint elie Do you dare to say that either Monsieur Pellisson or I? Nothing about either of you two, reverend sirs, replied the valet. Nothing about either of you two. But first let my valise be brought in and examined. Monsieur has been pleased to say that there is something there, and I swear by everything I hold dear, or by any other oath your reverences please, that I have not touched a thing in it since I heard of this business about the cards.' Let it be brought in, I say, and examined. May I tell the people without, my Lord Duke, to bring in everything I have in the world, and lay it down here before you? The Duke immediately assented, and while Jérôme Riquet, without entirely leaving the room, bade the attendants in the antechamber bring in everything, everything they could find in his room, saint elie and Pellisson looked in each other's faces with glances of some embarrassment and wonder while the Count de Mousseau gazed sternly down on the table, 
firmly believing that Master Jérôme Riquet was engaged in playing off some specious trick, which he himself could not detect, and was bound not to expose. The goods and chattels of the ballet were brought in, and a various and motley display they made for whether he had arranged the whole on purpose out of sheer impudence or had left matters to take their course accidentally his valise presented a number of objects certainly not his own property and of most of which his master if he had remarked them might have laid claim the count was silent however and though the manifold collection of silk stockings ribbons lace doublets etc 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 were drawn forth to the very bottom yet nothing the least bearing upon the question of the abstraction of the commission was found throughout the whole. As he shook the last vest to show that there was nothing in it, a smile of triumph shone upon the countenance of Jérôme Riquet, and he demanded, "'Now, gentlemen, are you satisfied that I have no share in this business?' The Abbé de Saint-Élie was hastening to acknowledge that he was satisfied, for he was timid as well as malevolent, and having lost the hold which he thought he might have had on Jérôme Riquet, the menacing words which the valet had made use of filled his mind with apprehensions, lest some suspicion should be raised up in the mind of the king, or of Louvois, that he himself had had a share in the disappearance of the paper. Not so, however, Pelisson, who, though he had learnt the lesson of sycophancy and flattery, with wonderful aptitude, was naturally a man of courage and resolution, and before Monsieur de Saint-Elie could well finish what he had to say, he exclaimed aloud, "'Stop, stop, Master Jérôme Rouquet. We are undoubtedly satisfied that the papers are not in your valise, and I think it probable that you have nothing to do with the matter. But you threw out an insinuation just now of which we must hear more. What was the meaning of the words you made use of when you said that you would not be answerable that more than a scrap was not found amongst the baggage of some that are accusing others. Jérôme Riquet hesitated and either felt or affected a disinclination to explain himself, but Pelisson persisted, notwithstanding sundry twitches of the sleeve given to him both by the Abbé de Saint-Élie and the bishop himself. "'I must have this matter cleared up,' said Pelisson, "'and I do not rise till it is.' "'Explain yourself, sir, or I shall apply both to your lord and to the governor "'to insist upon your doing so.' "'Jérôme Riquet looked towards the Count, who immediately said, "'What your meaning was, Riquet, you best know, "'but you must have had some meaning, "'and it is fit that you should explain it.' "'Well, then,' said Riquet, shaking his head upon his shoulders "'with an important look, "'what I mean is this.' that if ever I saw a man who had an inclination to see the contents of a packet that did not belong to him, it was Monsieur le Curé de Guadreuil here. He knows very well that he talked to me for half an hour of how easy it would be to get the packet out of the bag, and he seemed to have a very great inclination to do it. While he made this insinuation, the dull, fat, leaden-looking mass of the Curé de Guadreuil was seen heaving with some internal convulsion. His breath came thick, his cheeks and his breast expanded, his eyes grew red and fierce, his hands trembled with rage, and starting up from his seat, he exclaimed, "'Me? Me? By the Lord, I will strangle thee with my own hands!' And he sprang towards Jérôme Riquet, as if to execute his threat, while the governor exclaimed in a voice of thunder, "'Sit down, sir!' and, as you have joined in accusing others, learn to bear the retaliation, as indeed you must. "'Can he deny what I say?' demanded Riquet, stretching out his three forefingers, and shaking them in the curé's face. "'Can he deny that he talked to me for half an hour about the easiness of purloining the commission, and told me of a thousand instances of the same kind that have taken place before now? No, he cannot deny it.' "'I did talk to thee, base miscreant,' said the curé, still swelling with rage, "'but it was to show why I always sat upon the bag and slept with it under my head, "'even after that affair with the robbers.' "'Mark that, gentlemen,' said the Count de Mosset. "'Well, sir, we do mark it,' said the bishop. "'That proves nothing against the curé but extreme care and caution.' "'Nor can I prove anything directly, monsieur,' cried Riquet. But still I have a strange suspicion that the very night I speak of, D. 
did not go over without the fingers of Monsieur le Curé being in the bag. Let me ask him another question, and let him mind how he answers it. Was he, or was he not, seen by more than one person dabbling at the mouth of the bag? That was only to see that the knot was fast, replied the Curé, glaring round him with a look of growing bewilderment and horror. Ay, ay, continued Riquet, with a glance of calm contempt that almost drove the man mad. Ay, ay, all I wish is that I had an opportunity of looking into your baggage as you have had of looking into mine. And so you shall, by heaven, cried the Duke de Rouvray. I will have it brought from his chamber this instant. I don't care, cried the priest. Let it be brought, you will find nothing there. But the Abbe de Saint-Elie and the bishop both interposed. Though Pelisson said nothing, and looked mortified and pained, the others urged everything that they could think of for the protection of the baggage of the ecclesiastic, without the slightest consideration of equity or justice whatsoever. But the governor was firm, replying, "'Gentlemen, I will be responsible for my conduct both to the king and to the king of kings, and in one word I tell you that this baggage shall be examined.' You have brought back the Count de Merceuil and his whole train on charges and insinuations which you have not been able to establish, and you would now fain shrink from a little trouble and inconvenience which ought to be taken, in order to clear one of yourselves of an imputation accompanied by a few singular facts. Maître Riquet, call one of my servants from the door, but do not leave the room yourself. As soon as the servant appeared, the governor, notwithstanding the renewed opposition of the two ecclesiastics, ordered the whole baggage and effects of the curé de Guadreau to be brought down from the chamber that he inhabited. This was accordingly done, and besides a number of stray articles of apparel almost as miscellaneous in character and appearance as those which the opening of Riquet's valise had displayed, there was a large sort of trunk mail which appeared to be carefully locked. The curé had looked on with a grim and scowling smile while his various goods and chattels were displayed upon the floor of the governor's cabinet, and then turning to Saint-Elie with a growl, which might have been supposed to proceed from a calumniated bear, he said, "'Don't be afraid. They can't find anything.' And advancing to his effects, he shook them, one after the other, and turned out the pockets, when there were any, to show that there was nothing concealed, and then produced a large key, and opening the trunk mail took out one by one the various things that it contained. He had nearly got to the bottom and was displaying a store of tobacco pipes, some of which were wrapped up in pieces of paper, some in their original naked whiteness, when in the midst of them appeared what seemed a tobacco box also wrapped up in paper. The moment the eyes of Riquet fell upon it he exclaimed, "'Stop! Stop! What is that? There is writing on that paper!' Monsieur le Duc, I pray you to examine what is on that paper. The eyes of the curé, who had it in his hand, fixed for an instant upon the tobacco box and its envelope, and his fingers instantly relaxed their grasp and suffered it to drop upon the ground. Well, indeed, they might do so, for the very first words that were seen were, I pray God to have you, Messieurs Pelisson and Saint-Elie, in his holy care, with the signature of Louis. The governor unrolled the paper which, though it was but a fragment, left not the slightest doubt that it was part either of a commission or of a letter of instructions from the king to the two ecclesiastics. With his mouth wide open, his eyes ready to start from their sockets, his face become as pale as death, and his limbs scarcely able to support him, the unfortunate curé de Guadreau stood gasping in the middle of the room, unable to utter a word. All eyes were fixed upon him, all brows were frowning upon him, and the only thing which could have roused him, if it had been possible for anything to rouse him at that moment, was the extraordinary face which Jérôme Riquet was making, in a vain endeavour to mingle in his countenance a certain portion of compassion with contempt and reprobation. Nobody spoke for a moment or two after the governor had read the contents, but at length the Duc de Rouvray said, in a dry, severe tone, "'Secretary, you have made a note of all this. You will keep also the fragment of paper. My lord the bishop, Messieurs Pelisson and Saint-Elie, after the painful and distressing event of this examination, I shall make no comment whatsoever upon what has taken place. 
I beg that you would remove this personage, the curé de Guadreau, from my house to do with him as you think fit. You will not, of course, be surprised when you remember the threatening language which you three were pleased to use towards myself two days ago in order to induce me to cause the arrest of the Count de Mousseux upon a charge of crimes of which he was not guilty. Monsieur Pellisson, do not interrupt me. I know you are more moderate than the rest, but as you were acting together, I must look upon the words of one, your spokesman, to be the words of all. You will not be surprised, I say, recollecting these facts, that I send off a special messenger to His Majesty this night, in order to give him my own statement of all these occurrences, and to beseech him to take those steps which, to me, seem necessary for maintaining the peace and tranquillity of the province. I, gentlemen, do not encroach upon the rights and privileges of others, and so long as His Majesty is pleased to hold me in an official situation, I will not suffer anyone to trench upon my privileges and legitimate authority. As the hour for the daily meeting of the States is now fast approaching, however, I will bid you farewell, begging you to take this personage with you, and, as I have said, deal with him as you think fit, for I wish to exercise no severity upon any ecclesiastic. The persons he addressed had nothing to say in reply, that the bishop thought fit to harangue the little party for a moment upon his own authority and high dignity, and Pellisson endeavoured to involve a bad business in a cloud of words. They were all, however, desperately mortified, and not a little alarmed, for there was no doubt that they had proceeded far beyond the point where their legitimate authority ended, impressing the governor to severe measures against the Count de Mosoy. The loss of the packet, too, might now be attributed to themselves instead of to him. The delay in executing the king's will, as it had been expressed, would be laid to their charge. The Duc de Rouvray was evidently highly irritated against them, and his representations to the throne on the subject were likely to be listened to with peculiar attention, as they were coupled with the announcement to the king that the states, by his skilful management, had voted at once a much larger sum as a gift than any one of the court had anticipated. All these considerations alarmed the whole party, though indeed Pellisson, who had more knowledge of human nature than the other two, trusted with some degree of hope that the cloak of religious zeal would cover all other sins. His greatest apprehension proceeded from the supposition that the king would cast the blame of the loss of the packet upon themselves, and would attribute the negligence which had caused it to want of respect to his person. He therefore set himself straight away to consider how such a result might be obviated. The bishop and the abbé de Saint-Élie took an unceremonious leave of the governor and his friend, and pushing the culprit curé de Guadreul out before them, quitted the cabinet in haste. Pellisson paused for a moment to say a word or two more, in order to mitigate as far as possible the severity of the governor's report. But Monsieur de Rouvray was in no very placable mood, and the conference soon terminated, leaving the governor and the count to discuss the affair half laughingly, half seriously. The invitation of the Duc de Rouvray was now pressing and strong that the young Count de Mosseux should remain at least two days longer at Poitiers, and he coupled that invitation with a direct intimation that it was most necessary he should do so, as he, the Duke, had yet to learn in some degree the temper of the States in regard to the important questions between Catholics and Protestants. The young Count consequently agreed to remain, taking the precaution, however, of writing at full to Claude de Lestin, and sending off the letter by one of his own trustworthy servants, beseeching him to draw up the petition which the Protestant gentry had agreed upon, and to have it ready by the time at which he proposed to arrive at Mosseuil. During the greater part of those two days which followed, he saw little of Clémence de Marly. Without any cause assigned, she had been absent from all the spots where he was most likely to see her, except on those occasions when she was necessarily surrounded by a crowd. After breakfast she remained but a moment in the salle. On the first day she did not appear at dinner, and on the second she was absent from the breakfast table. The Chevalier d'Evron was also absent, and everything tended to confirm in the mind of the young Count de Mosseuil the impression which he had received that his friend was the lover of her whom he himself loved, 
and that some cause of disagreement, either temporary or permanent, had arisen between them. Nothing, however, tended to confirm this idea more than the appearance of Clémence herself when she was present. There was an anxiety in the expression of her eyes, a thoughtfulness about her brow, an impatience of society, an occasional absence of mind which was hardly to be mistaken. Her whole appearance was that of a person struggling with strong feelings, which were, in reality, getting the mastery. She showed no particular inclination after his return, except, as we have seen on the first evening, to speak with the Count de Mosseur, either in public or in private. Words of civility passed between them, of course, and every little courtesy was, perhaps, more scrupulously observed than usual with her, but on that evening which closed the last day of the young Count's proposed stay, a change took place. A large party had assembled at the governor's house, and though he himself looked both grave and anxious, he was doing the honours of his dwelling to every one with as much courtesy as possible. When suddenly, seeing the Count de Mosseux standing alone near the doorway of the second room, he crossed over to speak with him, saying, "'Albert, Clémence was seeking for you a moment ago.' "'Where is she? Have you seen her?' Ere the young Count could reply, Clémence de Marly herself came up, as if about to speak with the Duke, whose hand she took in hers in the sort of daughter-like manner in which she always behaved to him. "'Monsieur de Mosset,' she said, with a thoughtful lustre shining in her eyes and giving a deeper and brighter expression to her whole countenance, "'I have come to take refuge with you from that young de Ericourt, who evidently intends to persecute me during the whole evening. But stay, stay, monsieur, she added, turning to the duke, who seemed about to leave them, to speak with someone else. Before you go, hear what I am going to say to monsieur de Mosset. You are going, count, I hear, to take your departure tomorrow morning early. If you would walk with me for half an hour in the gardens ere you leave us, you would much oblige me, as I wish to speak with you. "'Now, dear King of Poitou,' she continued, turning to the Duke, "'you may go. I have no more secrets to make you a witness of.' The Duke replied not exactly to her words, but seemed fully to comprehend them, and saying, "'Not to-night, Clémence, remember, not to-night,' he left her under the charge of the Count de Mosseux and proceeded to attend to his other guests. Placed in a situation somewhat strange, and, as it were, forced to appear as one of the attendant train, of the bright and beautiful girl, from whose dangerous fascinations he was eager to fly. For a single instant, Albert of Mosseux felt slightly embarrassed. But unexpected situations seldom so much affected him as to produce anything like ungraceful hesitation of manner. Clémence de Marly might not perhaps even perceive that the Count was at all embarrassed, for she was deeply occupied with her own fancies and though she conversed with him not gaily but intelligently, there was evidently another train of thought going on in her breast all the time, which sometimes made her answer wide from the mark, and then smile at her own absence of mind. The eyes of the young Marquis de Erico followed her wherever she turned, and certainly bore not the most placable expression towards the Count de Mosseux, but his anger or his watching disturbed neither Clémence nor her companion, who both had busy thoughts enough to occupy them. After some time the excitement of the dance seemed to rouse Clémence from her musing fit, and though confined to subjects of ordinary interest, the conversation between her and the Count became of a deeper tone and character, and her heart seemed to take part in it, as well as her mind. Albert of Mosseux felt it far more dangerous than before, for though they might but speak of a picture, or a statue, or a song, with which he could have conversed with a connoisseur of any kind, perhaps with more profit, as far as mere knowledge of the subject went, yet there was a refinement of taste evident in the manner in which Clémence viewed everything, a sparkling grace given by her imagination to every subject that she touched upon, when her feelings were really interested therein, which was very, very winning to a mind like that of Albert de Marseille. Is it possible, under such circumstances, always to be upon one's guard? Is it possible, when the heart loves deeply, always to conquer it with so powerful an effort as not to let it have the rule, even for an hour? If it be, such was not the case with the young Count de Mosseux. 
He forgot not his resolutions, it is true, but he gave himself up to happiness for the moment, and spoke with warmth, enthusiasm, and eagerness, which can seldom, if ever, be displayed to a person we do not love. There was a light, too, in his eye when he gazed upon Clémence de Marly, a look in which regret was mingled with tenderness, and in which the cloud of despair only shadowed, but did not darken, the fire of passion, which might well show her, unless her eyes were dazzled by their own light, that she was loved, and loved by a being of a higher and more energetic character than those which usually surrounded her. Perhaps she did see it, perhaps she did not grieve to see it, for her eyes became subdued by this, her mellow and beautiful voice took a softer tone, the colour came and went in her cheek, and before the end of the dance in which they were engaged, her whole appearance, her whole manner, made the Count ask himself, "'What am I doing?' Clémence de Marly seemed to have addressed the same question to her own heart, for as soon as the dance was over, the cloud of thoughtful sadness came back upon her brow, and she said, "'I am fatigued. I shall dance no more to-night. All the people are doubtless come now, and dear Madame de Rouvray will move no more, so I shall go and sit myself down in state beside her, and get her to shield me from annoyance to-night.' The Count led her towards the Duchess, intending himself to seek his chamber soon after, but as they went, Clément said to him in a low tone, "'Do you see that pretty girl sitting there by her mother, old Madame de Marville, so modest and so gentle and retiring? She is as good a little creature as ever breathed, and as pretty, yet nobody leads her out to dance. If I had a brother, I should like him to marry that girl. She would not bring him fortune, but she would bring him happiness.' "'I wish, Monsieur de Mosset, you would go and ask her to dance.' Though he was anxious to retire, and full of other thoughts, Albert of Mosset would not have refused for the world, and Clémence, leading him up to her friend, said, "'Annette, here is Monsieur le Comte de Mosset, wishes to dance with you. I am sure you will, for your friend's sake.' The young lady bowed her head with a slight timid blush, and rising, allowed the Count to lead her to the dance.' No great opportunity of conversing existed, but Albert of Mosset took his special pains to show himself as courteous and as kind as possible. Annette de Marville led the conversation herself to Clémence de Marly, and nothing could exceed the enthusiastic admiration with which she spoke of her friend. Perhaps a little to the surprise of the Count, she never mentioned Clémence's beauty, or her grace, or her wit, matters which in those days, and at the court of Louis the Fourteenth were the only topics for praise, the only attractions coveted. She spoke of her high and noble feelings, her enthusiastic and affectionate heart, and in answer to something which the Count said not quite so laudatory as she would have had it, she exclaimed, "'Oh, but Clémence does not do herself justice in the world. It is only to those who know her most intimately that her shy heart will show itself.' The words sunk into the mind of the Count de Mosseux, and when the dance was concluded, and he had led back his fair companion to her seat, he retired speedily to his own apartments, to meditate over what he had heard, and what had taken place. End of chapter 10 End of the first volume